Uh, we continue our series in the Gospel of John. We're picking out these seven signs that John tells us about. And today we're looking at the healing of an official's son, which was the second sign Jesus did in Galilee. And yet, it is the third sign in our series, because Jesus did a sign in between in Jerusalem. And if this throws you, just don't worry about it, you know. <laughs> Who cares? We're just counting, you know. We're reading Scripture, we're preaching from Scripture, so that's what's really important. But we're coming to this third sign, and uh, we're going to discover something really important about the kind of life that Jesus wants us to have. So I'd like to read the passage, and then uh, I'd like to examine this passage under two headings. I'd like us to look at Jesus' grace, His grace, and then our faith as a response to that. So His grace and our faith. But let me read the passage first. This is John chapter 4, beginning in verse 46. John 4, 46. So He came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Let's talk about his grace. Now, why grace? Why am I talking about grace? Well, if you look at the verses right before our passage, so do a little bit of work with me, go to verses 43, 44, and 45. You will see that Jesus comes to Galilee, to the area where he grew up, and Jesus himself says that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. And then it says that the Galileans welcomed him, but from the story and Jesus' rebuke in verse 48 when he says, unless you see signs and wonders, you, here is plural, he's addressing the official and the Galileans. Based on that rebuke, we interpret the verse that says the Galileans welcomed him as they were only impressed by the miracles and wonders. And so he comes to this area where he grew up, where he knows he's not accepted. He knows that the best acceptance he can count on is the acceptance that's based on miracles and wonders. He can impress them, but they're not really receiving him for what he is, for who he is. And yet he comes anyway. And he performs a miracle anyway. Now, where was Jesus before he came to Galilee? What's the rest of the beginning of chapter 4 about? It's that story about Jesus talking to the woman at the well and his 
words relayed by the woman to the rest of the Samaritans, and then their own interaction with him leads to this massive spiritual awakening in Samaria. Jesus stays there for two days. He sees a massive revival. No miracles, no signs, no wonders, just his words. People believe, and they acknowledge him as the Messiah and the Savior of the world. He stays there for two days, right, where he is welcome, he's accepted, he doesn't have to do anything special, he doesn't have to impress them, he just speaks, he shows himself, a whole city believes. Two days there, and he, he travels back to Galilee, where a prophet has no honor in his own hometown, and where people will not believe unless they see signs and wonders. That's grace. That's grace. He's going to people that don't want him to reach them. So right away, even in the context of this passage, we see Jesus as a person of grace. Now, of course, grace is a major theme in the Gospel of John, as it is in the whole Bible. We are taught that Jesus comes to the undeserving, to the people who do not believe they need him. He comes anyway. Jesus is ultimately rejected and put on the cross by the people he came to save. John 1 verse 11 says, He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. He comes to the people that are supposed to know who he is and they reject him and they put him on the cross. And yet it is this grace, this love of the unlovable, that is the essence of Christianity. The life that Jesus came to restore to his world, to the world that lives under the power of death, comes to us by grace. In other words, everything that Jesus gives you, he gives us a gift. And we are all saved and transformed by this love, by this grace, by this gift. The cross, then, is the evidence of his grace, is the evidence of how far he's willing to go in his gracious mission to get us. And the empty tomb is the evidence of his life-giving power to transform us and restore us. But this life that he comes to bring, it comes to us by grace. Jesus says in John 10, verse 10, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. That's his mission. And this mission is accomplished by grace. He comes to give us not just life, but abundant life, or to use another favorite term from the Gospel of John, eternal life. And he comes to give it to us by grace. Now, it's important for us to understand that he does not come to make our life slightly better. He doesn't come to those who sort of have it together and we just need a slight improvement. Nor does he come to supplement what is missing in an otherwise happy life. Jesus comes to restore life completely and to banish death totally in all its manifestations. Physical, spiritual, individual, corporate, the whole creation is going to be renewed because his life comes in that abundant, eternal sense. 
He comes to give us a different kind of existence. He doesn't come to improve. He comes to replace our life, our existence. I can't really call it life. Our existence with His life. That's what He came to do. Now, please listen to me. That means that whatever we ask Jesus to do for us is always less than He intends to do. Do you understand what I'm saying? Whatever we ask of Him, whatever need we bring to Him, He always means to do more than we're able to ask. Now, look at our story here in our text. Here's a man coming to Jesus and asking Him to heal his son who is near death. And by the way, this man is an official in Herod's court in this godless, lawless, oppressive regime. And yet, remember, Jesus operates by grace, so he helps him. He helps this guy. So this man comes to him, and he says, come and heal my son, a desperate man. Not only does Jesus heal the official son, he also transforms the man and his whole household. The story ends with a spiritual awakening and a revival in that household. The official came to ask for health for his son, but Jesus intended to give him and his whole household eternal life. Jesus wants more for you than you want for yourself. He means to give you more than you know to ask him for. Is that not grace? Of course it's grace. He doesn't just respond to what we ask him. He gives us more than we ask because we don't know what to ask for. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus comes full of life. And then in verse 15 in John 1, from, from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. From His fullness he doesn't come to fix something in your life. He doesn't come to improve it. He comes to overwhelm you with his life. He comes with the fullness of life, and we receive grace upon grace. That's how gracious, not just a little grace, grace upon grace from his fullness. The Apostle Paul puts it into a doxology because we can't talk about it for too long until we start singing about it and, and we're given prayers of, of praise. And this is what Paul does in Ephesians 3, verse 20 and 21. He ends up giving you a doxology along the same lines. He says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. All that we ask, all that we think and don't ask, Right? According to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Paul says he's willing to give you so much more. He's able to give you so much more that we will praise him throughout all generations forever and ever. Now that we've said the context of eternal life, abundant life coming to us by grace through Jesus Christ, now we can ask a specific question about signs and wonders. Context matters. We need to set the foundation, but now we're going to ask and answer a very important question that I'm sure on many of our minds. 
What do we do with signs and wonders? Because you see, on the one hand, Jesus rebukes people of Galilee for asking for signs and basing their faith on the experience of his miracles. And that's, that's a theme in the Gospels. Jesus frequently rebukes people for saying, you want wonders, you want me to make, to make bread for you, to feed you, but you don't really want me. And he warns people not to base their faith on the experience of the miraculous, supernatural expressions of his power, on the one hand. On the other hand, he performs miracles so that people can believe in him. <laughs> again and again, in the Gospels, he does amazing things, miraculous things, so that people can believe in him. For example, John 20 verses 30 and 31. We've read this passage before. This is the summary statement of the purpose of the book of John, of the gospel of John. And it says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John says, I've recorded all these signs, all these miraculous things that Jesus did, and there are many, many more than Jesus did, but I've recorded enough so that you can read it and you can believe in him and have life in his name. So signs, faith, life. Okay, so what do we do with miracles? Let me narrow it down even more. What do we do with physical healings? Because that's what we're dealing with in this passage. There's a physical, miraculous physical healing of a boy. What do we do with physical healings? What is the relationship between a physical healing and eternal life? Should we ask Jesus to heal someone, like the official does in our passage? Should we expect Jesus to bring physical healing now, or should we only expect a spiritual healing now? Should we wait for a complete healing in glory, or does Jesus heal here and now? I'm sure these are the questions you're asking, because I'm asking them as I read this passage. Now, let me give you a helpful analogy that I think will help us put this in the proper perspective. Imagine you are making a big dinner. This is a special celebration. Pick your favorite holiday. And it it takes all day to make this, this meal. The aroma of this meal is spreading all through the house, and even some of the neighbors are wondering what you're cooking. It's getting close to dinner time. The guests are about to arrive. Everything is going well. You're on schedule, but it's going to take a little more time for everything to be ready. Your children can barely wait. They're hungry, and finally one of them comes into the kitchen. And he says, I am so hungry, and it smells so good. And you say, it's almost ready. Just wait a little while. And you know that kid can wait, so you you tell them to wait. And he leaves determined to be patient, even as his appetite increases. Another child comes in and complains that she is so hungry that her stomach is hurting. You look around to make sure no one is looking. And you say, come here. I'll give you a taste. And you let her get a spoonful of whatever amazing meal that you're cooking. 
Of course, you know that this little snack is not going to fill her stomach, but it will help her wait until the dinner is ready. This is the analogy. This is what I mean by the analogy. Jesus is preparing an amazing meal for us. When Jesus returns in glory, we will experience life in its fullest form. All aspects of death, physical, spiritual, corporate, creation, all of that, will be eliminated completely. There will just be no death there. Meaning that disease, trauma, disability, sickness, dysfunction, whatever you want to put on that list, will be gone. It just, they just won't be there. Jesus intends to bring total healing to us, total healing to his creation. So we are patiently waiting until he returns, and that happens, until the meal is ready and and the dinner bell rings and we all gather and we enjoy life to the fullest, abundant eternal life with no limitations, no barriers. (laughs) I'm ready too, Craig, yeah. In the meantime, as you wait, he may give us a taste of what is to come. He does it spiritually, and yes, he does it physically. A physical healing is what we're dealing with here. A physical healing is a taste of a greater healing to come. We'll have bodies. Our bodies will function properly. We will have no disease, no sickness. Everything will be fixed. We know that Jesus has that body. Jesus sometimes heals us here to strengthen our faith in what is to come. It's a taste. There's a physical healing, physical health, that tells us a greater healing and a greater health is still coming. Just as a taste of a great dinner cannot replace the dinner itself, or it can't even satisfy our hunger for that dinner, a physical healing here is temporary, and ultimately cannot be compared to the total healing in the future. And yet, it can very well encourage us to wait patiently for Jesus' return. On the other hand, Jesus sometimes tells us to wait and does not heal us here so that our appetite can grow stronger. It is not that he doesn't want us to be whole, He just doesn't want us to be satisfied with a taste, however small, and lose our appetite for the feast. Whenever we come to him and ask him to heal us, which is a good prayer, it's a biblical prayer, whenever we come to him and ask for a healing for ourselves or someone else, we need to remember that we are asking for a taste of a great dinner. We're not asking for the dinner. We're asking for a taste of a great dinner. In response, Jesus may answer our prayer and miraculously heal. Or he may withhold the healing until he returns. Whatever he decides to do with our particular request, our particular request for healing, is based on his knowledge of you, just as the parent in my analogy knows which kid can wait and which shouldn't wait 
which kid needs a snack now and which kid can wait and his desire will grow greater for the dinner because he always means to give you more than you ask for. Let me give you this analogy. I was watching this BBC show, Grandchester. Have you seen Grandchester? I watched the first two seasons. It's a story about a vicar helping the local policeman to solve crime. Very British. So I watched the first two seasons, and I got distracted by other shows, and, and I've recently returned to it. Turns out the old vicar's gone, personal problems, and a new vicar is in his place. And lucky for us, he is just as excited to solve crimes with the same local policeman as the previous vicar, and potentially may even be better. So here's the situation from, from one of the episodes. Leonard, who is... Uh, He's an assistant to the vicar, and he is struggling with his sexuality, which is part of the plot of the show. And he's trying to figure out, what does God want me to be? How does God want me to live? And he sort of lands on this idea that God wants me to be happy. And so he's talking to uh, the vicarage housekeeper, Mrs. C., who is on the opposite end. She thinks the Christian life is rigid. There are rules. There are laws. You cannot be happy. God doesn't want you to be happy. So they have this conversation. Leonard says, don't you think God just wants us to be happy? And she says, God wants us to be good Christians. Where on earth in the Bible does it say he wants us to be happy? And the rest of the episode, Leonard keeps bringing verses to her, and she says, well, that's about the Israelites, or that's about the disciples in that particular situation, and explains away every verse that calls us to be joyful and happy. This is a classic example of two extreme views of the Christian life. Leonard believes that we should expect God to fulfill our desires, even sinful desires, here and now, because God wants us to be happy. Mrs. C. believes that we should expect to deny all our desires because God wants us to be holy. So happiness and holiness are put at the, other, uh, at the opposite ends of the spectrum. What is the biblical teaching here? God wants us to be happy by being holy. He wants us to be happy. Of course he does. He's a good God. But how do we get to that happiness? We get to it by being holy, meaning that God is shaping our desires. He's not just fulfilling our desires, but he is shaping them. He is cultivating our appetite for the right kind of meal. He doesn't just trust our taste, our instincts, He's shaping them and changing them and cultivating them to, to have them meet this great meal that he is preparing for us. And he does so. He works with our appetite in order to make us happy. He does so by giving us signs of the life to come, like a physical healing, as well as by withholding a miracle with the goal of increasing our appetite and ultimately our happiness. Do you understand this dynamic. This is very important because that affects how you pray, what you expect from God, how you see Him. If you're on the one extreme, if you're on Leonard's extreme, you'll be constantly disappointed that God doesn't do what you feel is right, what you want Him to do. And you will think He's a mean God. On the other hand, if you're on Mrs. C's extreme, you will think that God doesn't want you to be happy, that whatever God is doing for you is just restricting you and limiting you and putting you in a box, just this cruel God. But God isn't like that. 
Neither view actually gives you the right picture of God. This is a God of grace, a God who wants you to be happy, a God who came to bring life to you, abundant life, full life, eternal life. This is who God is. But how does that life flow into you? Through holiness, through Him shaping your desires, meaning that He is concerned with your faith. He is concerned with your appetites. He is concerned with your desires. So sometimes to awaken your desires, He will give you a taste. And you will experience a miracle in your life, and you will say, I want more of that. And this is what God is offering for me. There will be a time when nothing will be in the way between me and God. On the other hand, the same good God, the same gracious, life-given God can tell you, I don't want you to have a taste because I want you to get hungrier for when I give you the meal. Same God. Same desires on His part but working with different people. And so we come to him in humility. And we pray for healing. Of course we pray for healing. Knowing that it may happen now, and then we'll die. Temporary. But it will be a taste of what is to come. Or God will say, just just wait. Be patient. I'm cooking. Be patient. It's coming. As I was reflecting on my life this week, because I'm wrestling with this, I'm thinking about physical healings and how I, does God do it? Would he do it if I ask him to? When I ask him, why doesn't he do it or why does he do it? I'm wrestling with the same stuff as you are. And so I thought about my life this week, and I found that my appetite for life with God, in other words, my faith, increased at different times through witnessing a physical healing as well as through witnessing God's refusal to heal. So when I, when I had a little bit of distance from those events, so I'm thinking about particular events, one where I asked for a healing and God didn't heal, and one when I asked for a healing and God did heal, I can't tell you that my faith grew more in one instance or another. All that I can conclude is that God knows me, and He did what was important for me, for my faith to grow. At one time, he gave me a taste of this meal to come, and my faith grew. At another time, he said, wait, be patient. The meal is coming, be patient, and my faith grew from that. My appetite increased for him. So know who he is. He's a God of grace, and respond accordingly and interpret these life events accordingly. Now, I needed to spend time on this, on on the idea of grace and and how God gives us life and what kind of life he gives us, because now we're going to talk about the official's faith and our faith by extension. So what do we do with it now? Jesus intends to give us more than we ask for. He wants us to have abundant eternal life, and he is preparing this great feast for us. He may or may not give us a taste, depending on what he knows about us and the condition of our appetite or our faith. And so now let's look at the faith of the official and apply it to ourselves. In Jesus' dealing with this particular person, he is clearly working on his faith, clearly. He's not only concerned with the immediate request, heal my son. He's concerned about that. He's concerned about the physical healing. But he also wants to give him and his family abundant life that comes by faith, comes by this appetite for him. So Jesus works on the man's faith. He challenges it, he grows it, he develops it. So let's trace the movement of the official's faith. 
First, there is faith in Jesus' power. It begins with faith in his power. Why did the official approach Jesus in the first place? Well, he was desperate. His son is dying. He travels to another town out of desperation because he knows that there is this Jesus who has a reputation of a miracle worker, and maybe, maybe his power will be applied to his son, and maybe he can heal his son. There is some assumption here that Jesus has power. It's unproven, it's untested yet, but there's enough faith in his power, at least in the potential of Jesus' power, that he travels and he pleads with Jesus to come and heal his son. Many a faith journey begins with a realization of a need. The official was confronted with the reality of death. His kid is dying. And so he goes to someone he thinks might be able to restore life. Now, this experience of, of, of coming to the realization that death is real, that this world is falling apart, that we're all going to die, that people get hurt, this realization in itself is a gift of God. It is a life-giving event, even though it comes through death. To see the reality of death is essential in our pursuit of life. Many people, many people live in denial of death. They don't think about it. And thus, they live in refusal to seek life. They, they think they already have it. They think they're fine. So they're not looking for that power. But through suffering, through trauma, through tragedy, through pain, through war, death is exposed. And the quest for life begins. I wonder if it's happened to you. As you look at your life, I wonder if this is how you came to Jesus because one Tuesday afternoon you realized that you're going to die or someone close to you was sick or someone close to you died or something awful happened in your life that just removed this illusion of a good world and everything happening the way it's supposed to. That's a gift if it happened to you. It's a gift. And if it hasn't happened to you, I pray that it does. I don't pray that you would be hurt, but I pray that you would see that this world is not as it seems. It has to be exposed. We have to see it for what it is because then we can start searching for life. Do you believe in God's power to help you? The only way you get there is if you get disillusioned in the power you have and the power the world has. But this kind of faith, this faith in, in his power is insufficient. And that's why Jesus is working to develop the official's faith. Jesus wants him and he wants us to move beyond the belief in his power. Because this kind of faith does not bring the fullness of life that Jesus wants us to have. Just as the divine life comes into your existence gradually, so your faith also grows and changes. Jesus' desire for a fuller faith explains why he rebukes the official in verse 48. He says to him, now he's using the plural you, so he's also talking to the Galileans, but he says to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. He's questioning this belief in power. He says, if you just come in here only because of my power, that's not enough. That's not the kind of faith I desire. 
Because we know that just seeing signs and wonders does not automatically make people believe in Jesus. It doesn't. Plenty of stories in the Gospels of people seeing amazing things and yet not following him. Plenty of stories in the Old Testament of people seeing miracles and turning away to follow other gods. My father, once who's not a believer, witnessed a miracle in Jesus' name. And he tells me about it. He says, I saw a, a, there was a physical thing, undeniable physical thing that happened in Jesus' name. Somebody was healed. And he attributes it to the power of Jesus. But he doesn't follow Jesus. He saw a miracle. He saw a sign, sign of life. Jesus has power, and yet he doesn't follow him. He doesn't believe in Jesus. Some people admire what Jesus has done in someone else's life. And they might even say, I'm glad you found Jesus. I'm glad you're free of drugs and Jesus did it for you. I'm glad it's working for you, but they don't follow Jesus. They don't want to follow him, even though their life might change for the better too. See, there's a difference. Faith in his power is insufficient. So second, there's faith in his promise. Faith in Jesus' promise. Look at verses 49 and 50. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. The man wanted Jesus to come with him, put his hands on the body of his boy. That's what people did to heal others. And Jesus only gives him his word. Again, Jesus is working on his faith. He's not only interested in healing the boy. He already healed him at this point. But he's doing that to evoke a different kind of faith, a, a, a fuller faith, not just faith, faith in power, but now it's faith in the promise. And that's enough for the official. He has that kind of faith. His faith has now developed and matured. He believes the promise. He goes home. The next day, he learns that Jesus healed the boy right when he gave him the word. But at the moment, Jesus' word is enough for him. Do you believe in Jesus' promises? Do you believe in his words? We often find ourselves in the gap between the promise and the fulfillment of that promise. Until we see Jesus do it, we believe his word. We simply take him at his word. Is that the kind of faith that you have? No miracle yet, but a promise of a miracle. No fulfillment yet, but a promise from this life-giving, powerful God. Well, I'm going to disappoint you that even this kind of faith, as marvelous as it is, this faith in his promise is also insufficient. It's not enough. Some people believe some of God's promises, and yet there is not an experience of the divine life in their existence. There are many people today who are sure that they are going to heaven simply because Jesus said so. They believe that. They believe in his promise. And yet, somehow, there's no anticipation of heaven. There's no hope in their lives. There's no real spiritual life in their existence. And that brings me to the third movement of faith. This is the final, mature, fuller faith that Jesus wanted and that Jesus got in this passage. We see the official and his family exhibit this kind of faith. This is faith in the person of Jesus. Not just faith in the power of Jesus, not just faith in the promise of Jesus, but faith 
in the person of Jesus. Now look at verse 53. It says, And he himself believed in all his household. Now, John already said in verse 50 that the official believed the word Jesus spoke to him. He already pointed to his faith. So why does he say that now, after he went home, after he saw his son well, after he put things together? Now he believed, and not just him, the whole household believed. Why is John pointing that out? Because this is a different kind of faith that has emerged. This faith, his faith has matured into something beyond believing in Jesus' power and even beyond believing in Jesus' promise. It became a relationship with Jesus himself. This is what happened here. This man became a follower of Jesus. Not just his power and not even his promises, but the person himself. Jesus was not only someone who could make his life better, or even someone who has power over life, or even someone from whom life comes, the Creator. Now Jesus has become his life. That's the difference. Not just a person who has life, but a person who is now your life. It's a relationship now. And this is the kind of faith that Jesus is after. This is why he's working with us. This is why he sometimes gives us a physical healing and sometimes he withholds it. Life comes through the person of Jesus. The same Apostle John who wrote this story down for us said in a letter to Christians in 1 John 5, verse 11, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his Son. It's in his Son. It's in Jesus. It's in the person of Jesus. It's in the relationship with Jesus. It's not just in his power, and it's not just in his words. It's actually in him. This life, this abundant, eternal life, is in the Son of God. Yes, he has power. Of course he has power. Yes, he makes and keeps promises. Of course he does that. But life is in him, and it comes to us through him, through a relationship with him by faith. And that's why Jesus keeps working on our faith. If your faith is still centered on you, it is an insufficient faith. If you believe in Jesus' power, it can still be about you. If you believe in Jesus' promise only, it can still be about you. But if you believe in the person of Jesus, it has to be about him. It has to be. And life comes from him. There's a story called about Joe DiMaggio when he was coming from the war. He served in World War II, and he was coming back from the war, excited to rejoin the team and play for the Yankees again. But before he did that, he wanted to go to a game as a fan. And so he brought his kid. He brought his four-year-old son, Joe Jr. So DiMaggio try to stand noticed, of course, but pretty soon the whole stadium is chanting, Joe, Joe, Joe DiMaggio. So everybody's excited. They know he's there. They're chanting. Everybody's in uproar. He's, their favorite player has returned, and they're excited to see him play again. So Joe looks down to see what his son's reaction, this four-year-old boy reaction, is to this whole stadium praising his father. It's a pretty big moment. Little Joe Jr. says, See, Daddy, everyone knows me. <laughs> How, how can that happen, right, we ask? 
But we do that every day with God. We think it's about us when it's about Him. Is that your faith? Yes, you know He's powerful, but that power is for you. Yes, you know He makes promises and keeps promises, but they're for you. Or do you know the person of Jesus? Is your faith in the person of Jesus? Is it about Him? Do you know Him? Do you love Him? You should be excited about the feast He is preparing for you. Of course, we're all excited about that. But are you even more excited that you'll be feasting with Him? He'll be at that feast. He won't just make it for you and leave. You'll be with Him. That's more exciting than the feast itself. That's more exciting than any physical or spiritual healing. We're going to come to the Lord's table now. And I want this to be an expression of your faith in Him and the person of Jesus. In anticipation of the fullness of life that is coming to you by grace, it's coming. He's cooking, it's coming. Let this be a taste of the great feast that He is preparing for you. And let this be an opportunity for your faith to grow. You know that when we come to the table, we do it by faith. I say that every Sunday because I don't want to leave any doubt that somehow this ritual itself can change you. It only changes you if you come in faith, if you come in expectation that God is working, that Jesus is working in you and with you. So let this be an opportunity for your faith to grow from faith in His power, from faith in His promise, to faith in His person. And as the official's whole household received life through the near death of a son, life is offered to you today through the death of the Son of God. Our story is about a father whose son is healed. But the gospel story is about a father whose son isn't healed on the cross. So you can be. So I can be. And then the resurrection. If you don't have life in Jesus, don't come to the table, but accept the summons to the feast. Accept his call for you to follow him and to know him and to start a relationship with him.